Welcome to Life-Altering Events with Frank Sakari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Sakari. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Frank Sakari, and you are listening to Life Altering Events. Today, we're broadcasting from beautiful San Diego, California, at the shores of the Pacific Ocean. Beautiful sight today. Now, given the current state of affairs in the world, it's very hard to try and find some good news or even accurate news. Most people are getting cabin fever from being quarantined in isolation, and that's all needed to stop the spread of this virus. It's frustrating, and it's depressing. But there are stories that give us hope. There are stories that make us smile, that make us cheer for someone who's overcome the odds. Well, today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to put the gloom and doom aside, and we're going to talk about something positive. We're going to talk with someone who has had more than one life-altering event thrust upon him, yet he constantly smiles. He's constantly loving life, and he's constantly inspiring others. As we say every week, life-altering events present us with an opportunity to seize the moment and make a difference in our life. When disaster strikes, we have a choice. We can choose to fall apart, or we can find the courage to pick up the pieces, deal with our grief, and start moving forward toward better times and better people. Remember this. It is never too late to have the life that you want and you deserve. As you listen to the show in the coming weeks and months, and I hope years, I urge you to think about participating in an upcoming episode. So if you have a life-altering event that could inspire others, visit the life-altering event page on voiceamerica.com and send me an email. Tell me about the event that so drastically changed your life, what it was, how you addressed it, and where you are now. We'll review it for content, and if it fits well into the program, we'll connect with you about using it in a future broadcast. We now have 150,000 listeners in 23 countries. So let me share your story with the world. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about the power of a positive mind. Now, we all go through periods in our life when things are going really well. Health is good. Things are working out at work, relationship is positive, the kids are healthy and happy. We walk through a parking lot, we find a $20 bill. We're living an active, healthy life, we're playing sports, we're hiking, we're whitewater rafting, we're working out regularly. Things just seem to be falling into place. Then there's a flip side, when things start to unravel. We're constantly feeling run down. Our get-up-and-go basically got up and went. One nagging illness after another that we can't seem to shake continues to find us. Then things turn serious. A loved one passes. A child has major surgery. We discover that a nagging illness is a life-threatening disease that would require a major, major organ transplant. While we're waiting for a donor that never seems to materialize, more things happen. Many times we'll lose a job. 
or the marriage ends. Then there's multiple surgeries that just simply sap the life out of us. And at times we receive the last rites. Bad times just seem to pile on. To quote a phrase I heard often when I was growing up is, when it rains, it pours. Now, very few people can deal with this physical, mental, and emotional strain. The illness leads to isolation, which turns to frustration, and then to depression, and then worse. Then there are people like my guest today, Robert Willis, who has endured all of these issues and more, yet he remains positive, uplifting, and inspirational. Robert is one of those rare people that you find in life who never gives up and never gives in. When you meet him and when you have the opportunity to talk to him, you leave feeling better about yourself. Now, I can't do his story justice, so let me bring in my friend, Robert Willis. Robert, welcome to Life Altering Events. Thank you so much. I'm very, very grateful to be here. Thank you. Well, this is our pleasure, Robert. Robert, let's start back when you were 19 years old. You were going to go on a two-year mission. So what was your life like prior to going on that mission, and what happened when you were on that mission? Um, before I left, I was working uh, two jobs, saving up money, and life was good. I was healthy. I was strong. I was in good shape um, and just uh, excited and anticipating to get ready to go on my mission. So I left in uh, the year of 1984, and everything was going along great. Um, I was having fun. I was doing what I wanted to do talking with different people uh, about God. And um, about a year into my mission, in February of 1985, is when things started to take a turn for the worst. I started getting sick. And at first, it was coming on uh, fairly slowly. And um, I started experiencing flu-like symptoms. And I thought that uh, I just needed to get some rest and that I would feel better. Well, at the time, I was serving in a little village in uh, the big state of Montana. And uh, I noticed that I was getting sicker and sicker. Uh, the fevers were becoming more often, and they were getting higher. And I can remember waking up in the morning, and my sheets would just be soaked. Uh, I was drenching with uh, night sweats also noticed that I was very fatigued and weak. Um, it got to the point where I would stand up and I would faint because I was just so out of it. That happened a couple of times and I noticed my neck was getting bigger and bigger. Um, it was very sore. It was very hard to uh, turn my head either to the left or to the right. So I went and saw the uh, village doctor there. And uh, he said, and he seemed confident at the time that, oh, it's an infection and a couple of shots of penicillin and some prescription will take it away. So I got the shots of penicillin and I took the prescriptions and it didn't take it away. It ended up getting worse and worse. So I had a couple more visits with him. He admitted me to the hospital there, which was a very small hospital at that. 
and he ran some tests. And then he came back and he said, um, after several tests, he came back and said, I'm sorry, but we, we can't do anything for you. Uh, we don't have the proper equipment, the resources, and the means to help you with this because we're so limited with such a small hospital. He said, so I talked with a couple of specialists up at a bigger hospital in one of the bigger cities in Montana, Billings, Montana, and it's a memorial hospital there. And he said, we're going to send you up there and they'll be able to take care of you. So I was transported uh, by ambulance up there. It was a couple hours hours drive out there. And um, when I arrived, I was admitted. And I remember going into the specialist that was going to be taking care of me. And he had me in his office, and I was sitting on the table there with a plastic um, paper that's on it. And he started to ask me my uh, medical background, my history, my family's history. And um, as he started looking me over and evaluating me, he sounded and looked a little stumped. And so he had told me, you know, I want to get a second opinion if you could wait right here. So I waited, and I thought he was going to bring in another talker. Well, come to find out, he brought in seven other doctors and all eight of them including him surrounded me around the table and each one of them stepped forward and kind of looked at me had me turn my head this way and that way and just kind of evaluated me at the time I couldn't believe that there was eight of them I sat there and counted from right to left and it was a very surreal moment I felt like an alien (laughs) but uh, they all looked at me uh, stepped up asked me different questions and then they kind of uh, discussed it within themselves and they walked out and I was left there with the original uh, surgeon specialist and he said well we don't know what it is but we know it's a a really bad infection uh, in your lymph node area So he went ahead and admitted me into the hospital, and then he would visit me every day and give me an update. And he came out with a plan of action. He said, we're going to run some tests to pinpoint it to see what it is. He said, but we're not rolling out anything. He said, with myself and the other doctors, we discussed, and it looks like with all the symptoms that you are experiencing, that you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's a form of cancer. Mm -hmm. And um, that really grabs your attention when uh, the word cancer comes to to mind. So they went away and they ran the test, ran every conceivable test they could. And then a couple days later, the doctor came in and said, okay, this is what we found. We decided that one of two things, we were going to send you on a plane back to California because uh, they're more advanced and they have bigger resources and uh, technology and equipment than we do. He said, but the problem is we think that you won't be able to make it. 
that you're so sick and to put you on a plane that you would not be able to make the flight down to California. So we're left to where we have you here. And what we're going to do is that we're going to do a surgery on you. And we have a plastic surgeon, a specialist, that's going to come in and cut along your neckline. And we're going to do some exploratory surgery and see what we could find and then go from there. So they went ahead and planned the surgery. And I went in and uh, it was it was different. You know, here I am, 19 years old, um, a long ways from home. You know, I didn't have any family or friends there. So, you know, I was kind of on my own. So we did the surgery, and uh, the doctor came back in, the surgeon, and he said, well, <clears throat> when we did the surgery and cut you open, we found a couple of lymph nodes that were just completely scorched with infection. And we went ahead and took those out. And we're treating that to find what type of penicillin or antibiotic will go ahead and kill off that infection. So they found the, the right medicine and penicillin to treat it. So they gave that to me intravenously. And uh, throughout the week, I started getting better. And I started getting uh, healthier, getting, getting my health back. At the time before I got sick, I was about 150 pounds, and I lost all kinds of weight. I dropped down to 115 pounds. Wow. So when I was released from the hospital, the suits that I wore for my mission, they just hung on me. In fact, all the other missionaries used to call me Grandpa <laughs> because they, <laughs> they fit so loosely on me. You know, I didn't fill them out. And, uh, but I was glad I was out of the hospital. The infection was over with, and I was on my way to recovery. And I made a, a vow and a promise to myself that when I was to return to California, that I would be in better shape, stronger and in better shape, healthier than what it was when I left for my mission. So it all started with a house I was living at. It had a huge, huge basement. The basements there are about the size of the big studio apartment here. Mm -hmm. And um, I would go down there every morning about 4 or 4.30 in the morning. And uh, I didn't have any weight equipment, so I had to be creative. They had a couple of brooms there in the, in the basement. I went ahead and grabbed one. I broke off the handle. I then went ahead and bought two one-gallon jugs of milk at the store and finished those off, rinsed them out, and then I filled them with sand. And then I went ahead and duct taped the lids to them, and then I duct taped and nailed it to the broom handle. So I started using that to work out. I didn't have a bench with me, so they had an old piano bench there in the basement, and I used that. And so I would uh, discipline myself to wake up every morning about 4 or 4.30, and before I started my day, I had worked out for about an hour to get in better shape. And I continued to do that for another year until I arrived at the day that I was going to be going home and flying into California. Outstanding. What a story. Now, Robert, there were eight doctors. Dennis, you did a surgery. Yes. Did they ever determine the root cause of what this illness was? They did. Uh, the primary surgeon that was in charge of me 
uh, he wrote me a letter later on uh, in my mission, and he had said that it was a rare, it wasn't uh, non-Hodgkin's disease, it was a rare form of a lymph node infection, one that he hadn't run across before, and that's what the delay was of them trying to research and find out what it was, but he had diagnosed it and classified it as a rare infection to my lymph nodes in my neck area. Mm-hmm. And he let me that. That's amazing. I've I've heard that story a couple of times, and every time I hear it, it just sends chills through my spine. That 19 years old, by yourself, yeah. eight doctors, and they can't determine what's going on. And they, before you go into surgery, the word cancer is flashing in your mind. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this segment went back way too fast. We are going to take a break here before we get into the next section with Robert because I don't want to break his, his mode here. And this, is, this story is absolutely incredible. It gets better. Stay with us. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Sakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Life Altering Events with Frank Sakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are having just an unbelievable conversation with Robert Willis, and he just went through with us his first of his of his multiple life-altering events that occurred when he was 19 years old, and he was on a mission, and he had been diagnosed. Uh, they determined with a with a rare type of lymph node infection. Uh, Robert, continue on. Finish that story for us, if you would. The last couple of days of my hospital visit, the doctors had asked me if I wanted to fly back home to California and to do my recovery there, to leave my mission early. And they gave me the choice, and I didn't want to do that. You know, I had committed myself, and I wanted to put God first in my life, and I always have been. And so I made a commitment to God that I wanted to go ahead and fulfill and to serve my mission. And so I stayed there and I was able to get my health back to be stronger and to finish out the mission that uh, I had served. So I was thankful for that opportunity. That is quite a story. Now, I understand you come back home and your health was, was pretty good for a while there. And then the end. Uh, 2007 comes along, and a friend suggested that you see a doctor. Okay, how did all that come about? And tell us what happened. Well, at the time, I was working two jobs. I had worked two jobs uh, for quite a while. I was an assistant to a paralegal at a law firm, and I worked that uh, during the day. I'd get in there early, about 6.30 in the morning. I would uh, open the firm up and update all the computers there in the office. And I worked there until about 4 o'clock, and then I'd race over to a local hotel, and I was the night manager there. And I'd work from about 4.30 to 11.30. And I did that for quite a long while. And every Thursday, we have a lounge there at the hotel. And every Thursday, we had a jazz group come in and entertain the guests there in the lounge. And the lead singer, the the head of the jazz group, a very nice lady, and she would come in and uh, she needed to get the keys from me there at the front desk to open up the closet to bring out all their equipment. So I got to know really well. And one particular Thursday evening, she had came to me and she had asked me, do you have a couple minutes I want to talk to you. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So she pulled me aside and she said, I'm really worried about you, Robert. She said, um, you don't look good. You, she said, uh, my eyes are really, really yellow. And my skin tone is starting to have kind of a yellow tint to it. She said, I'm worried about you. And I was thinking... Well, she's a, a, a jazz singer, and maybe it's just me, and I'm working two jobs, and I'm really overworked and just burnt out. But she said, I want you to know that I am a nurse practitioner at a local hospital, and that's my main job that I do during the day. She says, I just do the, the jazz singing just for entertainment at night. It's a hobby of mine. But she said, I'm really concerned for you. 
said, well, you promised me one thing. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And she had asked if I would go into um, a hospital and to get uh, checked out, to have them run some blood tests and to find out what's going on. So I promised her that I would do that. And uh, the next day I did that. And I started noticing during that time that I was getting really, really tired and fatigued. Really achy, like if you have a flu, just that um, fatigued, achy feeling. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that it was harder and harder to get out of bed. So I went ahead and turned in my resignation at the law firm. And I thought, okay, just working one job will give me that chance to catch up with uh, my health and feeling stronger. So I took a weekend off and I took off a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I figured that if I slept in and got some rest, I'd feel a lot better come Monday morning. Well, I didn't. I slept all day that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I could barely just pull myself out of bed to go to work. Um, I went over to the hospital the next day. I crawled pretty much into the emergency room. I was so just wiped out. There was no chairs there in the emergency room, and this was around 11 o'clock in the morning. So I sat there on the floor, and shortly after that, I was just exhausted, and I ended up just laying on the floor. A couple of hours later, they brought me in to run my, uh, check my vital signs, and then they sent me back out there. Around 9 o'clock at night, they brought me in to run some blood tests, and they had me stay there and wait for the results. And they came back, and they said, well, we know that your blood tests indicate that you're having a liver problem, but we don't know what's causing it. And they said, you'd said that you'd been working two jobs. You know, maybe you need to just step away from one job and just work um, just your night job and get a lot of rest and you should be feeling better. Well, that didn't work. Like about two weeks later, I was getting worse and worse. So I went back there. It was the same thing. Went in there, crawled in there about 11 in the morning, had to wait in the emergency room. They finally brought me in, and they saw how just how sick and exhausted I was. So I laid there on the gurney after they ran blood tests, and then they said, you're really, really sick. So we're going to admit you, but we're just waiting for a, a hospital bed in the room to open up. So to give an indication of how sick my liver was, a blood test has a number that ranges from healthy to not healthy, and that number is between 10 to 40. A healthy liver would be within that range, between 10 to 40. Mm -hmm. My liver count was up to 1,568. It was just off the charts. So... Obviously, that grabbed the doctor's attention. So they admitted me, and I was in there for about a month. And they, um, there was a team of liver specialists that worked with me every day. They'd come in, they would visit with me, and then they would leave. And they'd give me updates. And they first came in, and they said, um, we know that you have a very damaged and sick liver but we don't know what's causing it. So we're going to run all kinds of tests. We're going to leave no stone unturned, and we're going to find out what's 
what's causing this and to get you better. So they'd come back and they told me that, you know, it could be anything right now. It could even be a, a cancerous liver. And that's what we're heading towards and see if it's that and what we can do about that. So again, mm-hmm. more cancer comes up. And uh, obviously, it kind of throws me. But there was a silver lining to this. The day after that I was admitted to the hospital, I had a bishop from my church come in, and he said a prayer for me. And in the prayer, he said that this would not end my life of what I'm dealing with that this is just uh, an obstacle that's in the way that I need to get through, but that I will continue to live a healthy life and to get married and I wouldn't have any more complications. So after he had said prayer and he left, that just gave me a vote of confidence. That changed my whole perspective on things. It changed it so much that doctors were bringing in their class of interns and showing them what a positive outlook of a patient looks like. And they'd come in and they'd stop by uh, my room and they'd interview me. I thought that to be you know, pretty interesting. That is Just pretty amazing. Under the circumstances of, yeah, being sick. So what so did they decide weeks, the uh, diagnosis was? Well, about three weeks later, they found it to be that it was an autoimmune disease, that it was my white blood cells, which caused my infection with my lymph nodes, you know, back in 1985, that it, what happens is that when you have an autoimmune disease in your white blood cells, they turn into a hyper mode and they start to multiply. And they get tricked into thinking that one's organ, or my liver in this instance, was like a foreign bug. And they were attacking it and attacking it and attacking it to try to damage it and get rid of it. So they found that that was the cause. And so they came in and they told me about that. And they said, this is what we're going to do. So they did a biopsy to take out a tissue from my liver to go ahead and to treat that. And they said, we have quite a few different prescriptions that you're going to be taking, and you're going to be taking it for the rest of your life. It's going to suppress your immune system, so it's going to put you at a risk of getting more infections. So you have to counter that by exercising, working out, and staying healthy, and being very diligent in taking your prescriptions. So about a week after that, uh, they were giving me the prescriptions, and I started getting healthier and stronger. And again, I lost a ton of weight, but they released me, and I went back home, and I rested, started working out, and I got my health back. So much to the point that from 2007, when I was diagnosed, to 2014, I was able to work full-time and to coach basketball, uh, I felt fine. The prescriptions were doing a great job. So it was at that point until 2014. So that's how it all kind now, of unfolded. Now, when you and I spoke before, Robert, you said about in 2008, because of the, all the medication you were taking for the liver issue, you then developed an issue in your pancreas. 
So what yes. happened there? Well, the the liver prescriptions that I was taking, one of the side effects is that it damages one's pancreas to the point where it's not functioning. And so because of that, um, type 2 diabetes was uh, is what I got. And uh, I still have it to this day. And so I remember the doctors run a test and tell me that I had that. And it changed my whole life. Because before, I was used to eating anything I wanted and then going out and doing some running or working out the next day, and I'd be fine. But having type 2 diabetes introduced into your life, it changes things. I had to be disciplined on what I ate, how much, and to keep myself healthy and um, I'm taking insulin shots just to keep uh, my blood sugar at a very normal level for me. So mm-hmm. that was a big change. It was a change emotionally and physically. Uh, physically, I had to really watch what I was doing and eating. And then emotionally, it's like it, there's, it's telling you that you can't, eat the way they used to eat. You can't have this anymore. There there was a bunch of no's. No, you can't have this. No, you can't have that. Mm -hmm. And that was hard emotionally. I was used to eating what I wanted and then overnight to have that change. It was a big difference. Yeah, it is. That's a a serious thing. Now, when you're you're going through, now you're dealing with, in effect, stage four liver disease, right? The autoimmune disease. And you're type two diabetes. And then you under, if I understood correctly, your daughter then needed surgery for a tumor while all this was going on. Where did you find the strength to go through this? Um, it was very easy. You know, when I, I feel that this is for everybody. When you're going through something yourself, that's different. But when it's your child and your daughter, you find the strength no matter what, to be there for them at, at all costs. You put to the side of what you're dealing with to be there for them. I mean, family is first and, and foremost, you know, and so uh, it was very easy for me to put my physical limitations at the time to the side and to be there for my daughter. I, I had to be, and I wanted to be there for her. So it it wasn't a problem at all. That's outstanding. That's what great dads do. Great parents. Absolutely. Now I understand, Robert, your daughter recovered and yes. life was moving on again. And then you were on a liver transplant list for three years. And you know that if you don't find a donor, you're gonna die. So what was it like Correct. on that being on that waiting list? Well, at the time, my um, I was getting sicker and sicker. I had to uh, resign from working at the hotel as a, a front office supervisor. So I wasn't working at all. So bad was my liver that um, I was retaining a bunch of fluid. And it was so bad that water was coming out of my pores daily. I'd wake up in the morning, 
I would wrap both legs with ace bandages and put on tight socks to keep somewhat of the water inside my legs. By the day's end, my, my, the ace bandages and socks, were, were they were just soaked. And um, it was like that. Uh, I had to stay in bed a lot, keep my legs elevated to prevent the swelling. So finally, one of my doctors had referred me to um, University of California, San Francisco. So I went down there, and it's not a given to be on the transplant list. You have to qualify for it. And the qualifications are how you live your life. You know, if I was a drug user and um, didn't take care of myself, then uh, I'd be disqualified right away but I wasn't. So I had to go in for a day-long evaluation. Um, it was a psychological evaluation, a physical evaluation. Um, I had to take tests. I, I had different uh, interviews with different doctors and surgeons so that they could talk to me and get kind of a feel of the type of person I am and if I do qualify. So I did that for a whole day there in San Francisco, then came back, and about two days later, I received the email that I did qualify. But how they gauge on how soon or how long it takes for me to move up the list, it depended on how healthy or how sick I was. And there's a number that they use. And every Wednesday, the group of specialists for transplants would meet together over there at um, UC San Francisco. And they had a meeting, and they would have a list. And every week that I would do a blood test, they factored in a number on how healthy or sick my liver was. And a normal range is between 10 to, like, 20. And during that time, mine was, like, around 12 because of the prescriptions. And it stayed like that for about two years. But then it started creeping up to like 16 to 18. And then it shot up to around 23. And the doctors were getting a little bit worried. And I would move up mm -hmm. to the transplant list. And then in October of 2017, uh, my liver just crashed. And it was right. so sick that Robert. it shot up. Yes. Hold that thought right there. We're going to go on a break, okay. and I want you to, to be able to do that story completely without being interrupted. So, ladies and gentlemen, this last segment is, is by far the best and the most interesting. Do not go away. We will be right back. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. 
Frank Sicari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is our third segment with Robert Willis. And this is by far one of the most intriguing episodes we have ever had everyone has bad luck that comes into their life and everyone struggles but mr willis has been through more than anyone should with an autoimmune disease with liver disease with diabetes with a daughter who had to have a a major surgery and now after three years of being on a liver transplant list he finally gets the call robert tell us that story well, it got to the point where my um, blood test it showed that um, the normal range between 10 to 20, it shot up to, as sick as I thought, it shot up to around 40. And that's the danger zone. That's the danger area where it could go either way. So it was in uh, the latter part of October 2017 when my liver failed. And um, the local hospital they couldn't do anything, so they transported me by ambulance on uh, Halloween night up to uh, UC San Francisco where they did their transplant there. And how they worked that is that you stay there for five days. Now, typically, somebody that's going in for a transplant, especially a liver transplant, it's helpful if you have a donor because what they do is they bring in the donor, they take out part like a just a, a fourth of a, a piece of a liver from the donor and they transplant into me and the thing about the liver is, is that it regenerates itself it grows to a full size and coming from the big family you know I have my uh, dad and mom I had uh, six brothers and sisters and two kids and there wasn't a match now to find a perfect match, it's very precise, more so than what I thought. It has to be the same blood type, the same liver tissue type, and the same 
liver size. Now, if somebody was like around 6'5", their torso would be so much bigger to where their liver would be bigger. I'm only 5'5", so there's no way for a liver that size to be able to fit inside of me. So the doctors, when I got there, they, the team of uh, liver transplant specialists came in and said, all right, well, you're on the clock. You know, we're going to keep you here for five days, and we're going to be checking thoroughly for, through all hospitals and everywhere we could find to get you a perfect match to do the transplant and get you back to health in a normal life. So every day they'd come in and they told me they haven't found anybody yet, you know, but keep your fingers crossed. Well, on the fourth day, in the evening of the fourth day, they came in and they had broke the news and told me they're sorry, but they couldn't do anything for me. They haven't found a liver. And so they said that it'd be a good idea for me to call home to start packing up my stuff and to have family come up here and to pick me up and to take me home. And at that time, they told me they were sorry, but they couldn't do anything for me. And they walked out of the room. Well, I crashed. I hit rock bottom. I, I didn't know what to do. You know, when you're faced with a situation like that, you're not thinking, when can I go back to work? How much money I have in my checking account? You start thinking about your family. You start thinking about getting healthy and being with them, especially your kids, and spending time with them. I wanted to watch my kids grow up, to get married and to have a family. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a, a beautiful fiance that I wanted to spend get married and spend the rest of my life with. And all that was very uncertain with what the doctors had to say. So mm -hmm. it crashed. At and, then the, and then the news changed. What happened then? Well, at about 5.30 in the morning, uh, nurses and doctors came running into the room and they said, did you hear the good news? And I didn't know what they were talking about. I thought they were talking about something that was on the news, some announcement. And I said, no. And they said, we found you a new liver. There was a gentleman that had died last night here in San Francisco that's a donor. He has the same blood type, liver tissue, and liver size. Get ready because you're going to be going in for surgery to do the transplant in two hours. I mean, it changed from night to day. It was at 5.30 in the morning, and I called everybody that I knew. I didn't care at that time. It was 5.30 in the morning. Up. It didn't yeah, matter. I didn't care if I woke them up. Right. I was leaving messages. I was waking people up. Um, I was able to get a hold of one of my sisters, and I talked with her for about an hour while she was getting ready for work. And uh, they family couldn't be more excited. So they come in, they start preparing me, they uh, put me on a gurney, they run me to the operating room. And from about three feet away, the nurses tell me, look over there in the corner. So I look over there in the corner, and there's two doctors that are looking at something very thoroughly. And they're under a really big, giant, bright halogen light. 
and the doc or the nurses say, "Do you know what that is?" And I said, "No, I thought it was some type of tour." They said, "That is the liver that's going to be going inside of you in just a couple of hours." Very surreal moment. I mean, who can say that, right? <laughs> so. They went ahead and started putting me under uh, anesthesia, and they had a problem. One of the nurses there were sticking uh, needles inside of me to hook up IVs, and they missed a vein, and they went ahead and pricked my brachial artery on my left arm. Blood started to spurt out like crazy. Thank heavens I was under anesthetic at that time. But the doctors they didn't know what to do they called in an emergency vascular team they came in it took them a while to stop it but they finally got the blood stopped they sewed it up put some skin glue on me which delayed the surgery then a couple hours later the surgery uh, went as planned and they put the liver on me and you know I ended up in the ICU unit for about three days and then back into the regular hospital Wow, what a story. So now you have a new liver. At that moment, there had to be a sense of relief, I'm sure, after everything you've been through. Now, tell us how your body reacted. Sometimes your liver, the transplants don't take well. How did it work for you? Well, surprisingly, my body took right to it. In fact, the doctors were even surprised by that, that how quickly my body reacted and accepted the liver. There was no problems with that at all. And then with my recovery after I was released, um, I was heading in the right direction recovery-wise, but I was very anemic. And throughout that following year, I had several blood transfusions, and I was suffering from anemia pretty bad. Um, It took a whole year for my body to finally accept it and for me to be perfectly healthy and to start going back to work. So um, I was very grateful for that opportunity. As far as our sense of relief, I was, but um, I thought, okay, I'm out of the woods. Um, Life is going to be great. But the doctors, they're very straight with me, which I appreciated. And they said, well, we know of some patients that had a liver transplant and then 15 down, 15 years down the road, their liver transplant liver failed them. That there's always another option that you could go back in and get another liver. So I live every day like it's my last day. I wake up early. Um, I'm working full time now as a, a operations manager for a major hotel here in Sacramento. Um, I exercise daily and mm-hmm. I put God first in my life. So, you know, life couldn't be better. Uh, I just, I've been blessed with a new lease on life and with a second chance. And I take advantage every day. Now, Robert, I understood you went through eight surgeries in a two year span from 2016 to 2018, and then two more for skin tract, skin cancer, which is brought on by the liver treatments. So this liver continues to haunt you, and you continue to defy the odds. Now, I read a story, or you told me when we met, that after one doctor read your file, he first off decided, why are you still alive, number one? And number two, you were a medical miracle, and to encourage you to tell the story to others. So what are you saying to people who are facing these life-altering changes? 
I, um, I give them hope. You know, I, I feel that there's a lot of people out there that, that aren't as fortunate as I am. That, uh, they're down on their luck. Um, especially times like, like now where everything is under a quarantine state. Um, I feel that there's a lot of people out there that are battling something that, um, they're battling an illness and that could be physically, it could be emotionally, it could be, uh, addictions. It, it could be one of many things. And, um, for me to be able to get my story out, I, I hope that it inspires them and it gives them hope that they can look at what I've been through and they could think to themselves, hey, if he was able to get through it, then guess what? So can I. And it will give them that spark to push themselves forward and to get themselves on the road to recovery. I, I go by and I follow a saying that um, I stand by every day. It's by Nelson Mandela. And he once said that there is no passion to be found plain small and is settling for a life that's less than one you are capable of living. And I thought about that. You know, it comes down to a mindset. There are people that want it and then there are people that want it badly. And each day we have the opportunity to look ourselves in the mirror and decide which one and which side we're going to go on. It all comes down to a belief, discipline, and consistency. It's a mindset that no matter what obstacles go in your way, that your road to recovery, whatever it is, you perceive that. You keep moving forward. It works. I'm a Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been just a f- just an unbelievable episode. We are just about out of time. Robert, thank you so much for sharing your story and the power of your positive mind. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on your show. I, I greatly appreciate that. Thank you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we, we hear the term hero a lot, and oftentimes it's overused, but not in this case. Robert Willis is a hero in every sense of the word. He is a man who has truly found his calling and his purpose in life is to make a difference in the lives of others in their darkest moments. So let me leave you with this, ladies and gentlemen, as we end the show. Do three, three things. When you are facing challenges like this, please do three things. Look up, get up, and never, ever give up. Better times and better people will come into your life. If you've missed any of this show, you can listen to it on demand. It'll be available in about 2 o'clock California time and a number of places, iHeartRadio, Google, etc., and my website, franksakari.com. Let me leave you with this. None of us are in this alone. The secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. And today, Robert showed us where many of those rocks are. Join us again next week as we explore another life-altering event. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Life Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life changing week. The Good Kind.